We are continuing our series this morning in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, and I know a lot of you are kind of coming back from vacation or coming back from some kind of break. You're just trying to kind of re-engage into real life, and it's nice to kind of have like a kind of a slow roll back into uh, just kind of the regular kind of grind of, of what's happening in life. This chapter this morning is not going to help with that at all. Um, this chapter is going to require a great deal of humility as we work through it, um, and it is going to disrupt you at some level. Uh, it certainly did uh, me this week as I was working through it, so welcome to church. Um, let's pray and just ask God to help us uh, with 1 Samuel chapter 15 this morning. Father, we love you, and uh, God, we just thank you that your mercy, your word tells us, is fresh and new this morning. And God, we just thank you for your, your grace and your love that superabound, that endures for generation. God, you, your love is steadfast towards us. And God, as we come to this moment and have a great opportunity to get into your word and to have you speak to us, we pray that through your spirit, God, you would give us the humility that we need to hear and to see what it is that you want us to hear, what it is that you want us to see. And so, God, I pray that as you confront us with places of failure or lack in our life, God, that we would simultaneously, um, God, experience your kindness and your mercy and your grace that leads us to repentance. And so, God, I pray that you would uh, just deal with our pride or our arrogance this morning, God, all the ways that we make uh, excuses and rationale and why this doesn't apply to us, God, I just pray that that would just be done away with, God, that we would have ears to hear from you. And so I want to invite you, um, wherever you are in your relationship with God, to just give you a, a moment just to pray and just to ask God uh, that he would indeed speak to you and that you'd be able to hear from him. So just a really simple prayer just as we begin. God, would you speak to me and would I be able to hear you this morning? So just pray that right now. Father, what I'm asking for um, is not accomplished through human skill or might or intellect. It's only by your Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you move with freedom and do what only you can do, God? And I pray that there would be a particular covering and filling over me and in me, um, God, that I would honor you and make much of you, Jesus. And that's in your name we pray. Amen. So First uh, Samuel 15, if you're not there um, already, and just by way of kind of brief recap, because I know not everybody is here, we started in First Samuel chapter 8, and where we get the title for our series is a, a statement from the people of God, the nation of Israel. They say to God, we want a king, and they have a very kind of special or significant caveat to that request. They say, we want a king like the other nations have. God had set up his people to live out a particular way. He set them out to kind of be set apart from the other nations. And the nation of Israel are like, well, we don't really like this arrangement. We want the arrangement that all the other nations have. We want a king like the other nations have. And God, through Samuel, says to them, listen, those kings will become a tyrant over you. They will take and take and take. Um, and the people say, well, we're okay with that. We like our chances. We want that king. And um, what we've been learning and the kind of underlying theme that this whole series has been built on so far is that we all have a king. We either submit to the kingship of something or someone of the world's making, 
And that king becomes a tyrant that takes or we submit to or align our lives up to under the kingship of Jesus, and we experience all that, we, that he gives to us in his loving rule and reign. So Saul, uh, the man Saul, is put forth as king, and Saul looks the part. The scripture says he's very tall, very handsome, which is overrated, my opinion. Um, but it seems to be enough for these people. And it starts okay. Uh, Saul actually has a little victory. He does all right. But as we saw last week, things really start to unravel for Saul because his ego and his insecurity start to come forth. And we're going to see how that continues to contribute to his devolving of his reign in Israel. First Samuel 15, verse 1 Samuel says to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them and do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, right off the bat, we get into a verse that doesn't make us very comfortable. We're like, well, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound fair. It sounds kind of unjust. It sounds overtly cruel. But we need to kind of understand the context of what's really happening here. Josh Butler is one of the, pa- the lead pastors at Redemption Tempe. He's an author, and he's written about this, and he has five observations that kind of help us make sense of what's happening here in 1 Samuel chapter 15. The first thing you need to understand is the history of the Amalekites. The Amalekites are not just neighbors of Israel. They are their enemy, their perpetual enemy. The Amalekites are bent on destroying the nation of Israel and the people of God. Uh, We see it in in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, They attack a vulnerable and defenseless nation that was leaving Egypt out of slavery. Um, We see it in Numbers 14. The Amalekites attack again. Um, In Deuteronomy 25, 17, God mentions them again. The Amalekites are a essentially like thugs and muggers who were jumping this vulnerable community. You see it in the book of Judges, all throughout Judges, the Amalekites are regularly oppressing God's people. Um, in concentration camps in World War II, uh, the Jews referred to the Nazis as the Amalekites because like the Nazis, they were bent on the genocide of God's people. And so here in verse 2, what God is saying is like, I'm going to deal with the Amalekites for the way that they have treated you. If you remember, God made a specific promise to his people, whoever blesses you, I'm going to bless them. Whoever curses you, I'm going to curse them. And so he's doing that. The second thing to understand is the context of where this military, where this kind of battle really takes place because it's, we're thinking Amalek, we think like a city center or a population center, but it's, it's more of a military garrison of, and less as a population center. Uh, these would be like kind of military installations that would be guarding certain strategic places, not necessarily a place full of people. Um, also, to understand kind of the ancient, uh, the, uh, the nature of ancient warfare, like how this was taking place. So a lot of times when we think of battles in the scriptures, we have in our mind like images or, or things from movies, like medieval movies where there, the castle's being stormed and uh, children and women are running and it's just kind of chaos. But typically what would have happened is that if they were there, as soon as the battle would have started or before the battle was started, all the women and children and anybody who basically wasn't a soldier would have fled and would have left. And so 
in the Hebrew language, in ancient Hebrew language, when it's talking about destroying women, destroying infants, destroying sheep, destroying cattle, it's just kind of like a stock phrase for, for all. Uh, and it's saying destroy everything in the military outpost, um, not necessarily people who would probably most likely not be there anywhere. Um, the other thing to understand is just kind of like the ancient language of war. Uh, Butler calls it uh, ancient trash talk. Because a, a lot of times when they're describing things like this, um, th- they would speak in a kind of dramatic way about war. Um, it'd be like if you had a post-game interview with a team in the locker room and they say, we completely destroyed them, the other team. We completely annihilated them. You're like, wow, that must have been like something really like kind of ag- aggressive towards them. And they say, well, you guys only won by like five points. But they're, so they're kind of speaking in that way. And you would see a, a lot of that. Uh, Chris Wright, who's an Old Testament scholar, says this. He says, we must also recognize that the language of warfare had a conventional rhetoric that liked to make absolute and universal claims about total victory and completely wiping out the enemy. Such rhetoric often exceeded reality on the ground. This is not to accuse the biblical writers of falsehood, but to recognize the literary conventions of writing about warfare. The last thing that we kind of see that kind of helps us to understand this context is that the Amalekites are actually still around after this story. So uh, David's going to have to uh, deal with them later on in 1 Samuel. Um, In the book of Esther, it's Haman, who is an Amalekite, who tries to lead this movement of genocide against the people of Israel. The main point, though, to understand about this battle as we kind of move forward through the story is that this was a battle of justice, not a battle for Saul's and own enrichment. A lot of time when a king would go out against an enemy, it was so that they could gain more. They could gain more wealth. They could gain more power. They could gain more influence and they, so that their reputation would grow in the land as well too. But this is not a conquest that God is giving to Saul to become more wealthy or powerful or famous. It was God keeping up his word to his people in his defense of an oppressed people against their oppressors. So God is serious about his promise to the nation of Israel, to his people. And, and that's all shorthand for God saying to Saul, look, this is not about you, Saul. This is for me, my glory, my reputation, and for my people. So look at verse four. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telium, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. And then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. So Saul obeys God. God delivers his people, even blesses the Kenites. The Kenites were a group of people that blessed the nation of Israel when they were leaving Egypt during the Exodus. So you have, so it's, it's all good. Saul's told something to do by God. He does what God says. God frees his people. And, uh, and, and brings justice. Look at verse 8. He, which is Saul, took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle and fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. And they were, these they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. All right, are you paying attention to what's happening here? Because you read that and you're like, wait, what? Uh, Saul, hang on. God was very specific and very explicit about what you were supposed to do. 
It's an important note here, too, in the Hebrew, in the, in, the, in the original language. The word spared is singular, even though Saul and people are plural. And it indicates to us that Saul is the main actor here. So it, this is Saul's idea. This is Saul's action that the people are carrying out. Verse 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions and so Samuel becomes angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Now, at first glance, uh, this can be a, a verse that's kind of easy to get hung up on, because some translations even say that God says, I repent that I have made Saul king. So does that mean that God didn't see this coming? Does that mean that God's like shocked or surprised over Saul's activity? That's not what the Scripture is saying at all. There is a heresy called open theism that does say that, that does state that, but that's not what the Scripture is saying here. When God speaks like this, what He's telling us uh, is, is He's telling us about how He feels. He's sharing with us His emotions. He's, he's grieving. He's feeling sadness. It's not that He doesn't know the future. It's not that He's surprised by this. It's not that He didn't see this coming. He's grieved over the choices and the decisions that have been made. In fact, in verse 29 in the same chapter, it says this, He who is the glory of Israel, who is God, does not lie or change His mind, read, have regrets, for He is not a human being that He should change His mind or have regrets. What the, what the Scripture is saying is that God doesn't have regrets like you and I do. Like, if, like, there's a lot of us, if we had certain moments that we could go back to in our life, and like, if I could just do that over, if I could go back in time, make a different decision there, or make a different choice there, I would do it differently. But he does feel sadness, and he does grieve over decisions that we make. Verse 12, so early in the morning, Samuel got up and he went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. So Saul's in a different place than he's supposed to be, and there he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. So Samuel has had one of those nights. I don't know if you've ever had one of those nights where you just can't sleep because you're just like so angry and anxious and furious and over what it is that you have to do. Like you're just waiting, you know, for the, the clock to turn over. You're like, is it early enough? Can I call him now? Like, you know, does the sun come up? I have to go deal with this. And so he's having one of those nights where he has to go and confront Saul, and, he, and, and the Scripture says he's just, he's furious over it. And commentators kind of debate, like, well, is he just furious over Saul's choices? Some say he's furious because this whole king thing, he didn't like this idea from the get-go, and he didn't like Saul. He doesn't like what Saul's been doing. So Samuel has all of this stuff kind of wrapped up in it, and he goes to confront Saul. Saul's not where he's supposed to be. Instead, he's throwing a victory party complete with a monument to himself that he built. And so Samuel's like, you've got to be kidding me with this guy. In verse 13, he shows up and he reaches him. And Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Sammy, you made it to the party. Check it out. Check out this monument. Awesome, right? It's of me. I made it. Bless God. Totally did what I was told to do. I nailed it. I love Samuel's response in this, verse 14. He says, well then, what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? And what is this lowing of cattle that I hear? In Hebrew, the word for voice and the word for sound are the same word. And so what's being conveyed here is Saul saying, I totally listened to the voice of God. And Samuel's like, 
I have a hard time believing that because I can hear the sound of your disobedience. You see how ridiculous like this scene is here? With evidence of disobedience all around him, Saul still postures himself like, I'm totally doing what God likes. I'm totally doing what God has asked me to do. Remember last week when I said that we are a lot more like Saul than what we would kind of care to admit? Because how about when we gather for worship and we lift hands and we sing songs and we take notes and you might even throw a couple bucks in the box back there and we posture like, I'm good with God. I'm good with how he's told me to live my life and what he's called me to do. But there is evidence of disobedience all around you your spouse sitting next to you, your family in the same row as you, your coworker in the room, your neighbor, people from your redemption community, they know. You show up, you put on your church face, you're like, blessings, God's good, I'm doing exactly what he says, I've faithfully carried out the Lord's instructions. Do you realize how offensive that is to God? I told you this passage wrecked me this week because there are plenty of times that I have stepped up to this pulpit and there's been obvious areas of disobedience in my life. And I've told myself, I'm good. I mean, this really rattled me this week to the point I was telling some of our pastors, I was like, I don't, I don't want to physically preach this message up on a stage above people. I feel like I need to preach this on the floor down there because I'm in this boat and I don't want to present like this is something that does not apply to me. I, I need to preach this like on level ground, on the floor with everyone else. And they're like, well, bro, you're five six, so you need you to be up on stage so we can actually see you. Otherwise, it's going to be like a shimmer over your head all morning. It won't be any good. I mean, last night I was, I was sitting on the couch with my wife and I said, hey, I just need to ask for forgiveness. And she's like, for what? I'm like, I don't know, but I just need to make sure that like we are good because I, I need a clear conscience. I'm trying to think of like all the things that I just need to make sure that are kind of like out there and dealt with before I, I, I preach this. And listen, we all get caught in our sin and we all walk with a limp spiritually. The point is we can't live like that doesn't have an impact on us or on our relationship with God or our relationship with the watching world. I had a great week this past week. Uh, a friend of mine uh, from church here, he, he invited me on a fishing trip that he puts on for uh, his clients in, in Montana. And so I got the opportunity to go and my friend is in the tech industry and so his clients were all in the tech industry. I am not. I can almost figure out how to use my iPhone. Uh, but I got a chance to go on this trip. And uh, I don't know if you ever spend time with people who are not Christians, but you should. It's a lot of fun. And so I got to go and uh, like my first interaction, like right off the gate, I mean, I literally, the first thing out of the airport into the car and 
and these guys found out I was a pastor, and it was on. And uh, this guy, he was an older guy, ex, uh, ex-Marine, ex-military, pretty gruff, but great guy. And he looks at me, and he goes, well, my dad was a Baptist, and my granddaddy was a Pentecostal pastor. And I was like, well, you got hollered at a lot as a kid. Uh, and then he just kind of went in on me. He's like, well, what about this? And what about this? What about that? And it was a great conversation. I loved it. We kind of talked like that all week. There was another guy, um, and he pulled me aside, and he's like, listen, I grew up in a very religious background, and uh, I've made some really bad decisions, and because of that, I'm estranged and shunned from my family, and I've just, I can't reconcile that because I've noticed so much hypocrisy in them, and I've seen so many things that they've done, but yet I'm the one who's ostracized. And he's like, and I've gone to therapy, and I've tried ancient Eastern Indian techniques. I've been hypnotized. I've, like, smoked stuff. I mean, he's honest. I mean, he's just like, he's like, I have tried to reconcile this so much. And so I just said, hey, can I just pray for you? So I put my hand, and I start praying for him. And I just pray that God would just bring him freedom in what it is that he's searching for. And when I ended, he said, why did you say that word? What are we talking about? He goes, why did you say Freedom. I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, I just felt like that's what God wanted me to pray over you. That's what God said. He's like, that's the number one thing I'm looking for in my life. That's the thing that I want the most in life is freedom. I had another conversation on the plane ride, um, sitting next to a, a, a guy. And I know some of you, you love these moments. You love when somebody on the plane starts chatting you up. Like, you, that's the whole reason you fly, so you get to talk to a stranger. Um, that, that, is not, that is not my jam. Uh, so... Super interesting guy. He's kind of in his like early uh, 60s. He's a part-time uh, medical doctor, an emergency room doctor, and he's a part-time uh, pilot. He flies wealthy people around in private jets. Pretty amazing. So he's telling me all about his life and what he does. And we're talking. And then, of course, he asked me what I do. This is where it always gets weird for me uh, as a pastor. And it was great. His first question was like, why would you ever want to do that? I'm like, that's a, you're, that's a great question. I've been asking myself that a lot for the past three years. Uh, so... So we get in and we start talking, um, and he, he was very kind. It was very cordial, very kind conversation. And then he asked me something that just, like, really, really jarred me. And he was like, can I just ask you, like, what is with you guys? Like, like what, what are you talking about it? And he said, well, he's like, I'm not trying to be provocative. I know you're not even supposed to talk about religion on planes with people. He said, but I just haven't seen how your religion has made you any kinder. He said, I'm not trying to be rude or mean. And he's like, I can tell you're very earnest. I can tell you really care about this. You really want your people to get this. He's like, just from where I sit in my experience, he's like, I'm not a Christian. He's like, but I just haven't seen how Christianity has made you any like better for society, how it's made you show up any kinder in the world? And they said, well, why are you, why is there so much hypocrisy in the church? Why are Christians hypocrites? And I get it, and I could have sat there, and I was like, well, you know, not all doctors are that great. People are still getting sick and all that, but that wasn't the point, you know? <laughs> I'm also sitting there, I'm like, why am I the spokesperson for Christianity? I don't, this is, this is, I'm the wrong guy for this. Um, but I get, I get his question, and, you know, unfortunately, we were at kind of at the end of the trip. We talked about that a little bit, you know, and I just said, hey, thank you. You give me a lot of really great things to think about, and he said, yeah, same for me as well, too. 
But here's the point. This is why I'm bringing this up. We are, we're all hypocrites in moments in our lives. But what we do when the Holy Spirit confronts us in our sin and disobedience is of life and death importance. And we need to understand that your disobedience or your partial obedience, which is disobedience, and your hypocrisy, it's not no thing. And it has an effect on you, the people around you, and the people who are watching you who do not yet know Jesus. And Saul here, he's got a real opportunity when he's confronted by Samuel. And and how he responds to us should be a warning and a wake-up call to us. We're going to try to move quickly through this. Saul answered, verse 15, The soldiers brought them up from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. First of all, we've already seen it was Saul's idea to spare them, not the soldiers, but now he's shifting blame and justifying it under some kind of religious covering, under a covering of worship. They did it for God's sake. I mean, it's really not that big of a deal, Samuel. Verse 16, Samuel's had enough. He says, enough. Let me tell you what the Lord has said to me last night. Well, tell me, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, go and completely destroy these wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Samuel is saying, Saul, knock it off, man. Like, do you remember what you came from? Do you remember who you were and what God has made you? Is that not enough? You see, the reason that Saul spared Agag, the king, was it was because in the ancient Near East, having a captured king was a status symbol. Once a year, they would parade out all the kings that they had captured. And it would be kind of like this big kind of ceremony that would say to everyone, look, I am the conquering king of kings because I have all these kings in captivity. I mean, Saul builds a monument to himself. He kept the best of what the enemies had so that it would be a status symbol to all the people around him. And, and Samuel's like, listen, after all that God has given you, it's not enough, Saul. You still have to make a name for yourself. He still needed the recognition of people, even if that meant a little bit of disobedience for him to be in. Are you letting the Spirit do some work and the Word of God do some work on your heart right now? He still needed the recognition of people, even though God had given him all this stuff. And he's like, if I got to disobey just a little bit, then so be it. Verse 19, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites, not true, and brought back King Agag. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. He uses that phrase, why did you pounce on it? Meaning like you had to have it. You have an insatiable hunger. And now you want to justify your disobedience and get what you want in spite of what God had to say about it. You justify and rationalize partial obedience even though God sees your partial obedience as full disobedience. Samuel says to him, verse 22, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. He's saying, do you really think God is excited about your religious activity when there is glaring disobedience in your life? You think God gets just super fired up that you're 
attending church today and singing songs and you're giving a little money when your heart and your life are not fully submitted to him? Do you think God sits around poor and bored all week just waiting for you to show up to give him a little attention, a little bit of money so he can pay the bills? Do you think that's God's perspective, God's stance towards you? God does not want your religious rituals. He wants your heart fully surrendered to him. He wants your affections rightly ordered because when your affections are rightly ordered, your obedience will flow from there. Doing okay? Good, because it gets a lot worse. Verse 23, for rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance or presumption like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. Do you guys believe the Bible? Do you believe the verse that I just read? Do you understand what I just read to you? Partial obedience, which is full disobedience, is like worshiping Satan. It's witchcraft. If you guys came over to my house and I had a room that had a pentagram painted on the floor and like weird candles and goat heads everywhere. And I was like, oh yeah, that's the room where I sacrifice animals to Satan. You'd have an issue with that, probably. Yeah, okay. I don't, it's, we're cool. But, but all of us have places and categories and areas of our life that are not fully submitted to God. And we have all justified our partial obedience and it barely shows up as a blip on our radar, and we certainly don't let it interrupt our celebrations. And God says, it's arrogant, it's evil, and it's just like worshiping Satan. You have places in your vocation or your schoolwork where you're cutting quarters or you're cheating. You have sexual sin that you refuse to turn from or relationships that you are in that you know are not what God desires. You have bitterness and gossip and slander against others. You have greed and selfishness and your finances are a mess because you're just trying to constantly impress, acquire, and indulge and you pursue pleasure through substance or content and you just tell yourself, it's okay, my life is hard, I work hard, it's stressful, I've discerned it, I've earned it. You have internal attitudes against people or groups of people that maybe you think are hidden, but God sees it. You have some area of your life where God has clearly called you to obey, and you're either saying no, or you're giving him partially what he demands fully, and God says, that worships Satan. Because Satan is the deceiver. He's the one who says, and has always said, you don't have to do what God says. Just do your own thing. You can be your own God. You don't need God. You can be your own God. And God says, when you live like that, when you do that, you are in essence worshiping and walking in the ways of Satan. The evil of our sin and our disobedience and our rebellion is not just in what we do. We're so focused on and consumed by our behavior, by that list of things that I just wrote. As we're so focused on, we're like, oh, if I could just do that better or not do that thing. The evil of our rebellion and our disobedience is in our rejection of the authority of God in our lives and an affection for a rival king, namely ourselves. You understand what I'm saying? 
We're so focused on our activity and our behavior. And God says, no, it's, it's because you do not line up under my authority in your life. It's because your affection is aimed at all these different things. It's because your affection is more for yourself than it is for me. And if you would get those things lined up, then your activity would flow out of that. Then Saul says to Samuel, verse 24, okay, okay, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command, your instructions. I was afraid of the man, so I gave it to them. And on the surface, it looks like Saul's repentance, but there's two things that show us that it's not. One, Saul continues to have this pattern. Repentance means that you change direction or you change your mind, and Saul doesn't do that. The next verse actually gives us more of a clue. Verse 25, he says, now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back to me so I can worship the Lord. They're like, all right, well, so what's wrong with that? Saul's not saying, hey, let's go have a Bible study or worship service. He's talking about a national celebration of thanksgiving to God for victory. He's talking about a massive public ceremony. And Samuel is the only one who can offer the sacrifice and oversee it. And if Samuel doesn't show up, it's going to be a major black eye for Saul. And this is Saul's big concern, how he's going to be perceived by the people. So what about you? Are you more concerned with your status before people than your sin before God. If we had a moment in our service where everybody just kind of walked up on the stage, got on the mic, and we started to lay out all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our partial obedience, and all our disobedience, and we read it out loud in front of each other, we'd have a riot on our hands at a way smaller church next week. But we sit here in our sin and our rebellion against God. That's an absolute offense to him. And we know it, and he knows it, and we don't even flinch. But if our neighbor knew it, we'd be mortified. Verse 26, Samuel said to him, I'm not going back with you. You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And Samuel turned to leave, and Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, there you go, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. Very dramatic moment here. Saul lashes out, rips a piece of the garment. Samuel said, that's what's happened to you in your reign, Saul. It's a foreshadow of King David. David is by no means perfect. We're going to see that, but he knows how to repent, and he knows that the kingdom belongs to God, not him. But the story's not over yet. We're almost done here. Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. So Agag walks in and he's like, hey, look, man, let's just turn the page on all this stuff. I mean, we got history. You've killed some people. I've killed some people. Let's just let bygones be bygones. Surely the bitterness of death has passed. Let's move on. Verse 33, and I'm going to read this in the ESV because it's pretty wild. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. He butchers him right in front. So Samuel out here looking like Samuel L. Jackson, cutting people up. All right, that's the end of the story. You want to do communion and sing some songs now? <laughs> All right, we're not going to do that. I know for some of you, guilt is like a really religious experience. Like the more somebody makes you feel bad on the Sunday, the better you think the service is. But we're not going to do that because the gospel is better news than that and the Bible gives us a better way forward. There's a a uh, pastor and author named J.D. Greer, and he's got some, he talks about the anatomy of disobedience. So I want to give you five things that kind of serve as handlebars so we can better understand our disobedience. The first thing, uh, and, I, and, and I, this was helpful for me, I just, I've tweaked them a little bit, but most of this content comes from him. So 
the first thing we see is that disobedience is anything less than full, immediate obedience. Disobedience is anything less than full, immediate obedience. According to Samuel, witchcraft level rebellion is seen in any partial, conditional, or delayed obedience. And so the question for you to wrestle with is, where am I not fully living under the authority of God in your life? Where am I not fully obeying God? Because what religion wants to do is cover our rebellion with rituals. It offers ceremonies like Saul, but not surrender. With religion, we try to offset our allegiance to other kings with a half-hearted obedience or a selective obedience, and we try to pay off God in some way and still retain full control and kingship over our own life. So disobedience is anything less than full immediate, immediate obedience. The second thing is that disobedience stems from our dissatisfied souls. Disobedience stems from or comes from or grows from our dissatisfied soul. Sin is a result of our believing the lie that we can find what we need more of outside of God, that we won't be okay, that we won't be satisfied, that we won't be safe with God in the way that we could be with someone or something else. We have to have recognition so we compromise morals and values so that we can gain influence in relationships. We have to have acceptance so we go from relationship to relationship and we break promises and we dissolve our marriages. We have to have pleasure so we escape and we indulge in pornography or overindulge in food or drink or substances. We have to have comfort and so we leverage all of our resources so there's no room for generosity and we're enslaved to debt. We have to have security. So anyone or anything that's not like us, we attack and we demonize and we build walls and we don't build bridges. Our problem, like Saul's, is that our soul is not content or satisfied in its possession of God. And so our idolatry fuels our disobedience. And until we are satisfied in Jesus, our appetites for our idols will always enslave us. And any behavior modification that we make will be short-lived without a realigned affection for God. The third thing we see is that disobedience distances us from God and makes our behavior and our justifications more irrational. We're going to see this as a real turning point in Saul's life, but this becomes just an absolute tailspin for him. Saul continues a a pattern of rage and envy and jealousy and bitterness and violence. He's going to spend years of his life tracking David through the wilderness, trying to kill him. And you might not act exactly like Saul, but your self-centered desires will grow out of a separation from God. And the longer you stay away from God, the more dysfunctional and destructive your behavior will become because disobedience distances us from God and it makes our behavior and our justifications more and more irrational. Fourth, disobedience reveals a created choice, either self-deception or repentance. So Saul has a chance, but he chooses a self-deceived narrative that excuses his sin and blames others for his disobedience. He's constantly pulling in the soldiers who were just doing what Saul told him to do. He offers half-hearted worship to cover his foolishness. He doesn't repent. He's just like, well, let's just kind of have a church service. That'll cover it. Let's just have a worship night. That'll cover it. And he lives with a general thinking that he's a good person despite his not obeying God fully. 
You and I, like Saul, we rationalize our sin and we excuse our rebellion and we create categories that operate outside of God's law or jurisdiction. We create categories in our life that God's law does not apply to. And we create caveats for our obedience. And once we begin to rationalize our sin and make excuses why our behavior or our attitudes are okay or not as bad as others or try to cover it up, we deceive ourselves. And like Samuel's robe, our lives are torn in two. If today you are feeling like you are being ripped apart, it's because of this. God does not want your rationalizations. He wants your repentance. He doesn't want your sacrifices or your ceremonies. He wants your submission. And the choice between self-deception and rationalizing our rebellion and repentance, death and life, slavery or freedom is in front of all of us today because lastly, disobedience can be overcome by the gospel. The band's gonna come up. We are gonna close. We're gonna go in a moment of communion. But disobedience can be only overcome by the gospel. Samuel here, he has to remind Saul who he was before God made him a king. Saul, you came from nothing. You came from nowhere. God put you in the palace. The good news of the gospel is that it reminds us of who we once were. The scripture says you were an enemy of God until God, in the person of Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man, came and lived the life that you could never live. And though Jesus was tempted like you and I, he never sinned and never disobeyed his Father, but lived and died in perfect obedience, even to the point of death on a cross, taking on himself all of our rebellion and sin and disobedience, and because of his great love for us in his mercy and by his grace, God has made us what we could never be apart from him. The gospel tells us what we were, and it tells us what we are. We are sons and daughters of the Most High, a kingdom of priests, forgiven and free with a purpose and a plan to carry the person of Jesus into the world, empowered and indwelled by the very spirit of the living God with an incorruptible inheritance held in heaven that can never be lost or taken. And when we know how immeasurably loved we are in Jesus, and because of what he has done, those who come to him in repentance and faith are not condemned, but are set free. The gospel message is good news is that Jesus lived in perfect obedience, yet he was given the punishment for our rebellion and disobedience. He suffered and died one time for all time, the penalty for all of our satanic worship so that we could be called saints of God. Not that work that we have done, like we could earn it, but a gift of grace Jesus took on all of the rejection that was due us so that we could stand accepted by God. Because of Jesus, you have God's approval. And when you get the beauty and the value and the height and the depth and the width and the breadth, the complete volume of the gospel, and when that reality rules your heart, you won't need the agags 
And you won't need the monuments that you build to yourself. And you won't need the recognition. And you won't need all the choice things that the world has to offer so that you can feel valued and accepted and approved of and recognized. But when you understand the the beauty of the gospel, you'll be free from the power of disobedience and self-deception will be broken in your life. Every week we take the two elements that are in your chair near you. We take the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ because they're given to us as a symbol of remembrance of who we are in Christ and what made that possible, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And so every week, if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to eat and to drink in remembrance and celebration of that. It's also a moment for you for repentance and for return, a recognition of the places of partial obedience or full disobedience. A a place for you to come face to face with the grotesque and horrific nature of your sin, for you to call it what it is. It's witchcraft. It's worshiping Satan. And to understand that you are forgiven and free because of what Christ has done. We use this phrase around here a a lot when we come to this moment of of grace. That yes, and what we see in Saul and what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 15 is that yes, we are more flawed. We are more sinful than we care to believe. Which is why we rationalize and self-deceive and why we justify and why we make excuses. We don't want to believe that, but we are. But at the same time, because of what Jesus has done, we are more loved and accepted than we could ever dare imagine. Which is why after we take the body and blood of Jesus, we always stand and sing and celebrate because you sing about good news. So eat and drink, and then we'll do just that.